station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Houston, we are ready for the event. When the solid rocket boosters lit, it just lit up the Florida coast and we leaped off the ground like a wild animal. It was sensory overload, vibration, sound, light. Hi, I'm Kim. And I'm Murray. And this is the Great British Liftoff. Did you ever think we would be speaking to the International Space Station? No, that is a dream come true. Wow. (laughs) I still can't believe we did that. It's quite hard to think back and say, yep, we were direct in contact with Houston, who gave us a countdown to dial in live to a group of people flying around. At 17,500 miles an hour. (laughs) Yeah. So well done. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Well, well done to you. It was a team effort. We pulled it all together and we worked with people on three different continents. I mean, what? it wasn't that hard, was it? It wasn't that hard. No. Well, come on. We have to give a big shout out to, of course, Professor David Alexander, who was driving force in Houston behind this. So massive yeah. thanks to David. Yeah. And we're going to run an interview that we did with David just at the end of this show, just explaining how it all came about. But I know you didn't come here to hear Murray and I chat. I, I would have thought, good. I'm disappointed by that, actually. <laughs> Is okay. that what you think? Well, I don't know. Do people actually come to learn about space? Yeah, I think Not they, our they should. Answer. <laughs> I think they heard there's five astronauts in this one and they're like, get on with it, guys. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's fair enough. People who have been to space strap themselves to a tube of fireworks and uh, <laughs> blast themselves into orbit. That's probably better, isn't it? That is probably better. And actually, of all the astronauts that we spoke to, Greg Johnson was just fantastic. He's your new best pal, isn't he? He, he is. He is my my new best friend. Fantastic guy. What a life. And he's still going in space, actively working on new missions. Fantastic. Absolutely love speaking to him. Yeah. And that's going to be our introductory interview for this episode is Murray having a chat with Greg. It started off actually in the UK. My dad was in the US military as a musician. So I'm a military brat, Air Force brat. Uh, ended up going to the Air Force Academy and, and started flying airplanes for the Air Force. Uh, went into fighters and then in the test pilot business and uh, joined the astronaut corps in 1998. So a couple decades ago. Uh, and then got to fly on two space shuttle missions, STS-123 and 134. Fantastic. What kind of tips would you give somebody who's watching, who's uh, quite a lot younger and who's thinking about an exciting career as an astronaut? Well, when I was going into the program, uh, there were the pilot astronauts and there, then there the, were the smart ones. And uh, obviously I was a pilot because uh, I didn't know how to turn my camera on. But uh, no, no, really, we uh, the, the pilots were professional uh, aviators, um, mostly from the Navy and the Air Force and also from some of the other services. And the mission specialists really specialized in just about, you know, anything in a, a STEM related field and education and medicine as well. And so uh, in the shuttle days, uh, the pilots were assigned to operate the the ship. And then the mission specialists were the ones who generally did the spacewalks and uh, performed the the science uh, and technology development on the space shuttle and the space station. So there there were really two sort of paths when I was applying 20 years ago. It was going through the military pilot track, test pilot track, 
or the scientists and, and or the more generalists who were uh, uh, accepted as mission specialists. Now, all of those disciplines have kind of merged together as we have these new crews that we're putting together on the International Space Station. Many of the uh, occupants of the International Space Station have, have multi-talents. They're good in science, but also good in operational uh, activities like flying things and, and robotics. So preparing for being an astronaut, I think the most important thing is to do what you love and not necessarily pick a discipline that you think is going to lead you to the astronaut core, but more do what really excites you so you can get up in the morning and it's not really work. It's, it's always play. I've always loved the jobs that I've had along the way. And I think that you'll do better in a job if you wake up and it's not work. It's, it's, you know, play. It's what excites you. Maybe we could talk a bit about the excitement of strapping yourself to a huge firework and firing yourself up into space. A thousand people have joined us now live for this. They want to know what is that experience like? Well, first of all, I was just amazed to be there. I wanted to be an astronaut since I was seven years old. And, and now it's like 40 years later, I'm flying to, finally getting to go to space. So it was a dream come true. I was really excited. I, you know, I had anticipation a little bit because I knew of the risks that were were about to happen. I didn't know what it was going to look like, you know, because you can train in simulators, high fidelity simulators all around the country, but you just can't simulate a launch when the solid rocket boosters lit. It just lit up the Florida coast and we leaped off the ground like a wild animal. It was sensory overload, vibration, sound, light. And since it was at night, we had a, a thin overcast deck that was illuminated by the bright solid rocket boosters. And it was like flying through a wall of fire. I mean, it was it was an incredible experience. I can't hardly use the right words to describe it. And then once we popped through that thin cloud deck about 10 seconds later, it was completely dark and amazing as we accelerated toward uh, 17,500 miles an hour for about eight minutes. Unbelievable. <laughs> that sounds like quite an incredible experience. And so what's what's the transition like as you as you hit space and you start to lose the gravitational pull on your body? Well, at the moment of main engine cutoff, I laughed hysterically for like <laughs> 10 seconds because you go instantly from three G's acceleration to poof, you're floating in space. What's interesting on the shuttle is a few seconds after uh, managing cutoff, we separated from the external tank. And because it was at night, and also because we had a malfunction that took away six of our RCS jets, we had this really long external tank um, release. And that RCS jets, the reaction control system jets, are firing boom, 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 boom in all directions. And it was balls of fire flying away from us. It was like being inside of a firework. It was amazing. But once that was over, once that excitement was over and everybody got their wits back, uh, it was just it was just really fun and serene floating, uh, floating in outer space and, and looking at our beautiful planet for the first time. Unbelievable. So did that experience change your perspective on being an Earthling? I think it changes every astronaut's perspective. I, I hope that scores and scores and tens of thousands of people get to go up to outer space in the next upcoming generations, because you really get a sense of how beautiful our planet is, how we're all globally interconnected. You're looking at this beautiful place and we're going around the earth every 90 minutes. So you could see all the beautiful lands around the world and they're all populated by people. We're just all occupying this, this wonderful place. 
So let's think about the uh, the experience again. And um, you talked about some of the skills you might want to have uh, to become uh, an, an astronaut. What about this aspect of teamwork? It's very much a teamwork exercise on a lot of levels. When you, when you live up on the International Space Station, it's a lot like going on a scouting uh, camp trip or, you know, a, a backpacking expedition. It's a slightly more extreme one. <laughs> it's a little bit extreme, but you're doing the same sorts of things. You're taking care of each other. You're looking after your gear, lending a hand. Um, you're being part of a team, but that team is part of a much bigger team on the surface of the planet and mission control and all of the mission controls and all around the world. But let's think about the, the future then, because um, these new technologies, maybe that you're working on, you're working on some new technologies to land people on the moon at the moment. Could we talk a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, in the last couple of years, uh, NASA uh, and the United States has uh, set course on going back to the moon. Uh, by 2024, that and that was a very short notice kind of project. And so uh, five companies started uh, building, five groups of companies started building uh, human landing systems uh, to get us to the moon. And now now there's three in the competition and it's probably gonna go down to two, one or two here in just the next few weeks. But uh, I'm on a team that is uh, comprised of Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Draper, and a few other partners uh, putting together the, uh, what we call the National Team Human Landing System. And with Lockheed, I'm working on the asset element, which is the portion that the astronauts will be living in. And I'm working closely with the integration of crew and also thinking about how we're going to train the crew in the, in the years to come to be ready for that mission. So it's really exciting and the design is changing so fast. You know, Lockheed Martin is a very well-established big aerospace company. I have never seen a huge company like this move so fast with the design, but it's by by nature, you know, SpaceX is in the competition of course. Blue Origin is a is a fast-moving uh, space company as well and Lockheed Martin is keeping pace and it's really it's really fun every day. Yeah, it does sound fantastic. And um, we are in, in really a space race, I suppose, aren't we? We have these plans to, to go and visit Mars. Could you talk a little bit about your vision of the, the future, so maybe the next generation or two? Well, you know, we have the International Space Station that's been in low Earth orbit for 20 years now with human presence. Uh, and there need to be similar space stations around the moon and perhaps around Mars. And then, like you said, colonies on the surface of the moon and on Mars and perhaps spaceports on some of these uh, celestial bodies that are that are, you know, used for the connection. And, and they'll, I, I would envision they'll be all interconnected by some sort of master air traffic control, you know, space traffic control. It's gonna be really exciting. If you think about the national airspace system and how it evolved with airplanes here on the earth, uh, we're gonna do the same sorts of things in space in generations to come. Do what you love. I can't underscore that more than any other point is do what you love. Don't do what you think is gonna make you an astronaut. Do what you, what do your passions and your passions will lead you to space in some fashion because all different kinds of people are needed to go in outer space in the future. And I've saved a little special clip for you for afterwards. Have you really? Okay, yeah. go on. Okay, so this is the moment when Greg Johnson, who's been into space twice, who's a fighter pilot, an astronaut, told Murray that he would make a good astronaut. What do you reckon? <laughs> do you think he's got a chance, Greg? I, I think he does. He's a pretty smart guy. You're young. 
Um, I'd say go for it. <laughs> Put your hat in the ring. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, Kim, it's been lovely knowing you. I'm off to ESA uh, and I'm going into space. So thanks okay. very much and good Have night. Fun. Thanks for listening. I'm going to make that your ringtone. There you go. You're young, you're young and you're smart. Oh, if only he knew, hey? If only he knew um, all these, uh, these filters you can put on your webcam. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So what, so what else have we got lined up? So we've heard from Greg. We are now going to maybe chat with a couple of orbiting astronauts. What do you reckon? I think that sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's, let's go live. Disclaimer, not technically live, but it was yeah. live when we did it. Well, it was live when we did it. Okay, well, let's go back to a time when it was live. Seamless link. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Houston, we are ready for the event. Houston ACR, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for a voice check. Station, this is Houston ACR. How do you hear me? Houston ACR, we have you loud and clear. The Space Institute at Rice University engages in research, technology development, and education. With colleagues at Scottish Enterprise and the Waikil Space Society, we have brought together students from Houston, Scotland, and Ecuador who are excited to talk to the International Space Station and for the collaboration among our schools going forward. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce the Right Honourable Nicholas Sturgeon, MSP, First Minister of Scotland, for some opening remarks. I want to say hello to all of the young people who are taking part in this uplink. I'm very grateful to the Rice Space Institute, NASA and all of the other partners who've helped make it possible. Today, you all have a chance to hear directly from the crew of Expedition 64 about the research they're carrying out and about what it's like for people from different countries to work together for the common good. It's a brilliant opportunity and I hope you find it inspiring. And I know you'll all want to get on with the questions straight away. So let's move on to the first one. Hello, my name's Cameron Kelman. I'm age 15 and I'm a student at Bathgate Academy in Scotland. My question for NASA is, how do you mentally and physically prepare for a long-term space mission? Thank you. Hey, that is an excellent question because it does take a lot of preparation to get ready for a space flight. On the mental side, I don't know. You just really have to be ready to go. You have to know that you're going to be gone for your friends and family for at least six months, usually longer than that because we go into quarantine ahead of time. So um, you just need to be ready, and everybody prepares for that differently. Physically, you've got to be in shape to be able to do spacewalks, to be able to take the loads of launching and landing. And so we actually work with athletic trainers before we leave uh, Earth to make sure we're in the best physical shape we can be before we get up here. Hello, my name is Emilia Franco. I am 14 years old. It's a privilege to ask this question in representation of my school, Unidad Educativa Javier in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Once you have looked at our planets from space, what do you think about humanity's effort to live a sustainable life? Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you. That is a wonderful question, and we're really excited to be speaking to you as well. Our planet certainly is beautiful. Um, we can see it. We have some, some windows here in an area called the cupola, and we're pretty busy during the workday, but when we get a chance, we like to look down. Often this is maybe at night uh, after all of our... All of our duties are done and we see the earth is such a beautiful and peaceful place, but we're also very struck by how fragile it is. There's just a very thin atmosphere. Um, the planet looks like it's this beautiful, bright planet, but it's alone. It's It's got uh, really the dark, cold of space surrounding it. And so 
I think it helps us think a lot more carefully about this is the only place that we've got. This is where humanity lives. And we do get a strong sense that we need to take very good care of it. We're interconnected and it is a fragile oasis. Hi, my name is Megan and my question goes out to any and all astronauts. How does food preparation differ in outer space and are there any extra measures you need to take in order to ensure proper nutrition? Oh, that is a great question, Megan. Um, nutrition is important, and you are absolutely right. Nutrition is important on the ground, and it's very important in space, too, because what we eat can affect how healthy we can remain up here. While we're in space, we are constantly losing bone density, so we need a way to keep our bones strong. Some of that's through exercise. A lot of that's through nutrition. So how do we do it? Well, we've got teams of people on the ground that actually prepare all our food for us and send it up to the space station. So we depend on them to make sure that our food is nutritious sound uh, so we uh, can eat it up here. Preparing food up here is pretty simple. We just heat it up and eat it. Hi, my name is Leah Mowbray and I attend Lockhill Academy in Scotland and my question is after completing a space mission and returning home how long does it take you to recover physically? That's a really good question. We're thinking about this now because all of us are getting close to the end of our mission. It takes about 45 days uh, to do our complete physical rehabilitation. Um, really, we start feeling better in about the first week or two, but we have to relearn how to do a lot of things. So when we get home, uh, we can kind of walk, but it doesn't look very graceful. And we lose a lot of things like our proprioception, our sense of balance, even just our ability to support our weight since we're so used to floating. Uh, we have to kind of learn how to walk again. So this takes quite a bit of time and it actually, um, it takes a lot of effort at the gym. We do a lot of different kinds of rehabilitation exercises. We're feeling good after about two weeks and we're really back to our normal earth-based selves after 45 days. Hello, my name is Leo. I attend Baylor College of Medicine Academy at James D. Ryan in Texas. My question is, could a disease ever evolve in space, and could it reach the Earth? All right. <laughs> uh, Shannon gave this to me because I'm the virologist. That is a really good question. Um, so we are we go into quarantine, we go into isolation before we launch, and the way that most diseases transmit is between people or between animals to people. So since we're isolated up here during our entire space mission, we're probably not going to have a disease that we don't bring with us. So we screen all the astronauts before they launch to make sure that they're healthy. You can have something called latent virus reactivation where a virus that we carry within ourselves uh, starts to become more prominent since we're a little bit more immunosuppressed and Shannon's saying like chickenpox. Um, but it's very unlikely that any new viruses would evolve up here because we don't have any other people besides the few that are up here and we don't have any animals. And that's really how viruses evolve uh, on Earth and that's how they transmit on Earth. So because we're separate, until we start having hundreds or thousands of people in space, we're not likely to have any new viruses evolve up here. Hi, my name is Maider. I go to Seabogram Primary and P3B. My question is, how much packaging does your food need in space? I am sorry, I did not catch that question. We don't always have good uplink sound. Is there any way you can repeat it? Station, this is Houston ACR. The question was, how much packaging does your food need in space? Ah, how much packaging does our food need in space? That is an excellent question because actually that is something we are always complaining about. Our food has too much packaging, we think. And it creates a lot of uh, trash that we have to deal with up here. So 
I think we would like it if we had less packaging. Right now, we have dehydrated food that comes up. It's in a plastic bag that we can inject the water into to make our, our meals. And that plastic bag is wrapped in something else. So if we could get down to at least one bag instead of two, that'd be better. And if we could do something that it would actually degrade as opposed to just plastic trask, yeah, maybe we need to figure out how to do composting up here. That would be even better. My name is Elena Muñoz, and I attend John Living Academy in Guayaquil, Ecuador. My question is, because of lockdowns that pause transportation and industry severely during the pandemic, what changes have you noticed across the Ecuador? That's a really good question. Because we circle the globe every 90 minutes, we can see all parts of the world. And uh, I, I, when I launched, there was already the pandemic going on. And I'm a virologist. You know, I mean, everybody's been hearing about this, but I was really thinking about it. We did have a very interesting study where we were taking photographs of cities at night. And we were trying to see if human movement in these cities uh, was changed in the pandemic. And I think they have seen that there's differences in the cities before the pandemic versus now. Obviously, people are moving around a a lot less. So we can't see too much at the individual person level. About the biggest thing we can see is things like cars and buildings, but we can certainly see lights. And we have noticed, um, you know, if you look at at things like commercial air travel, uh, very early on, the number of, of flights going across, we can see the trails that the airplanes leave. That's reduced, and then some of the lights in the city are reduced because of the pandemic. Hi, my name is Lorna Nails, and I'm an eighth grade student at Bale College of Medicine Biotech Academy at risk. And my question is, what was the most surprising aspect of taking a spacewalk? Uh, that's a good question. We did, uh, we did five spacewalks on this mission. It was a lot. Each spacewalk uh, takes a lot of effort by the whole team. Um, so it's not just the people doing the spacewalk. It, this is everybody on the ground involved, and then there's hundreds of people uh, on the ground that help out and and on board, of of course, also. The effort involved is pretty significant. Um, We plan for it for weeks and and months when we're training, and the ground teams plan for years. Um, Some of the harder things to overcome are just being in the vacuum of space. We don't train. uh, We train underwater, but we really don't train in vacuum. And the other really hard thing is that it's night. Uh, We go day-night cycles, and so all of our training on the ground we do during the day, um, but we have to get used to doing a lot of work at night where we have very little visibility. Uh, One of the cool things is we do get to see the planet through just our visor. So we're always paying attention and being careful, but we do get to take a few moments to look at the planet and see how beautiful it is. Hi, my name is Robin and I attend East Bank Academy in Glasgow. My question is, before your first trip to the International Space Station, you would have studied space in great depth. Now that you're experiencing it firsthand, is it what you imagined it to be? And if so, does it still amaze you? Yeah, that's a good question. We do spend a lot of time studying about space, but it's really hard to adequately capture what it's like to be up here. You can kind of imagine what it's like to float all the time, but tell you're doing it 24 hours a day, it doesn't really meet your expectations. So up here, I would say, um, one, it's a lot more interesting, a lot more fun to float all the time, but it's a lot more challenging than you might think because you're always having to find ways to stabilize yourself um, and you really, really have to keep up with all your stuff 
because if you don't put it someplace very carefully, it is going to float away and you're going to spend two days looking for it. So, yes, it's kind of like what we expect, but not entirely, and it's a great place to be. I am Valeria Sara. I'm 15 years old. It is an honor to contact you from the UEJJR in Guayaquil, Ecuador. The question we would like to ask is the following. How important is it to get schools involved in space education? And how can our school help promote this educational approach? Thank you very much. We look forward to your response. We look forward to your response. Thank you. That is a wonderful question. We think it's incredibly important. Shannon and I are doing this event with all of you because we think this is so incredibly important to get young people involved in space and space science. There's a lot of things that we do up here that actually students can participate. Uh, we do things like CubeSats. We actually launch satellites from the International Space Station and university students can work on these. We have projects that high school students can work on. So there's a great project it's called Hunch that actually some local area high schools participate in. I was just using one of their items today. They design things that are going to be useful to astronauts and they fly them up onto the space station. So it is, it's, I think, one of the most important things that space station can do is serve as an outreach tool to young people. And certainly if you're interested in space science, you can go to the nasa.gov website and there are all kinds of projects that your school can do, that you can do with your friends. Uh, and that you can get people in other schools interested in at any grade level. I would definitely recommend checking it out. And if you get a chance, fly us an experiment up to Space Station. We would love to work on it. Hi, I'm Vian. I and I'm six years old. I'm in elementary school, and I want to ask you: Does your hair get tangled in space? Does our hair get tangled in space? That is an excellent question. Maybe not as much on the ground. I don't know. We don't have the wind up here, so that's not going to tangle our hair. But look at Kate's hair. It just floats around. I keep mine in a ponytail so it doesn't uh, get in stuck on Velcro and get into things. But your hair can be a lot of fun up here for sure. My name is Grace, and I attend Holy Family Primary near Glasgow, Scotland. My question is, do you have to keep a record of the space debris in orbit and can it be dangerous to the space station? That's a really good question. It's actually a really important one. We do have issues with space debris. So uh, when we launch things, for example, rocket fairings can sometimes fall back to Earth, but sometimes they stay in orbit. When satellites are at the end of their service life, they can stay in orbit. Sometimes they collide and they make a lot of space debris. So this is a concern. There's a lot of people that monitor space debris on the ground. And if we have an object that's big enough, we'll make sure that the space station avoids that so we don't have a possible collision. But it's hard to track all of these objects. And so this is something if, if uh, you guys are interested in what the future of space is, learning about space debris and how to avoid space debris, how to plan for it, how to make sure that we build our satellites in a sustainable and renewable fashion so that we plan for those satellites uh, to come back to the Earth to burn up and not to litter the atmosphere uh, and to litter the orbit with space debris. So there's a whole field out there. Um, we have a lot of people working on it, but we definitely can use some more smart people thinking about this. Greetings. I'm Santiago Kuhn from Unidad Educativa Javier in Guayaquil, Ecuador. I'm 12 years old. I would like to ask the following question to the astronauts. How can experiments such as the one 
conducted with the seeds, we contribute with our goal of living in a space. It is a pleasure to contact you. Houston ACR, can you help? Station, this is Houston ACR. The question is, how can experiments such as the one conducted with the seeds contribute to our goal of living in space? Ah, yes, seeds. Very good question. It is so important for us to learn how to grow plants in space, because if we're going to take long trips, say, to Mars, we're not going to want to eat packaged food the whole time. We're going to need a way to grow our own food. And so we've actually done a lot of experiments up here. We've got some plants growing right now. So we're looking at how do you adequately water the plants? How do you get plants the nutrition they need so they can grow properly and produce food for us? So it is amazingly important. And it's, it's, um, it's just something that we're only taking the baby steps at now, but we really need to figure it out so we can get more places in our solar system with people. Hi, my name is Sasha Mackay and I attend Preston Academy in Scotland. My question is, do you have a time zone? Does it affect your everyday lifestyle or your sleeping pattern? Thank you. Station, this is Houston ACR. The question is, what is your time zone and how does it affect your sleeping pattern and daily routine? Thank you. Yes, we are on Greenwich Mean Time, so uh, we're we're about London time. Uh, we uh, picked that time early on in the yeah. space station days. This, we've got control centers all over the world, and so we had to pick a time artificially to be on. And this is about halfway in between Houston and Moscow times, and so uh, it's staffed 24/7 uh, in all these different control centers. So we kind of stay on this sort of European uh, London time zone, and we. We uh, shift when we get up here, and we just stay on that unless we have a visiting vehicle coming. If we have something docking to the space station, we might need to get up in the middle of the night uh, because of the way it launches and, and orbital phasing. We have 16 sunrises and sunsets a day. Um, mostly we're actually inside, though, and we have artificial light. This can affect your circadian rhythm negatively. One of the new things we've done recently is put lights up that have different wavelengths, and so we can adjust it to have less blue light in the evening when we're trying to sleep and more blue light in the morning. And that helps some of our circadian rhythm adapt. But it is one of the big challenges that we have in space. Hi, my name is Caitlin Davis, and I'm a student at Michael E. DeBakey High School for Health Professions. And my question is, how do astronauts from multiple countries collaborate in space light for scientific advancement? Yeah, that is an excellent question. How do we how do we collaborate up here? Well, this is the International Space Station, so one of the ways that we do it is by having international astronauts. Right now, our crew is composed of four American astronauts, one Japanese astronaut, and two Russian astronauts. And we all work together to accomplish the science up here. So, for example, right now, one of the... Uh, partnerships that we have for the International Space Station is the European Space Agency. Well, there is no European astronaut up here, so we work with the European experiments to make sure that their science is accomplished. If, say, in the future we don't have a Japanese astronaut, well, we will all, whoever else is up here, will do the Japanese experiments. So we work together uh, to accomplish great things. Well, that was brilliant. My name is David Alexander. I'm the director of the Space Institute at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And I'd like to thank NASA, Dr. Rubens, Colonel Hopkins, and of course, all of our young participants who made today such a special event. Thank you all. Station, this is Houston ACR. That concludes the event. Thank you to all participants.
station, we are now resuming operational audio communications. Wow, that was very cool. <laughs> Would you say? <laughs> I thought that was absolutely incredible. They've got great Wi-Fi. They should have better Wi-Fi than I have right now. <laughs> Greg, it's way better did... than it was when I was up there, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did, how did that make you feel, Greg, seeing your, your colleagues and your friends up there? And did it make, bring back good memories? Smiles and, and some emotion. We, we've worked together for decades. And uh, in fact, Kate and I uh, were office mates when she first came to the astronaut office. And uh, she was so capable. It's funny, as the new astronauts join the astronaut corps, you realize that <laughs> the astronauts keep getting better and better. I'd never get selected to be an astronaut these days. Uh, but she's super smart, super personable, and very dedicated, as you could hear. And the answers were just spot on. I was very impressed with them. And how great to see two women, right? This is, I mean, only 65 women have been into space, and we had two of them on the space station talking to us. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, the, the, uh, the classes lately have been 50-50 men and women, as it should be. Murray, have you ever done anything cooler than present a watch party for a live link with the International Space Station? Got chased by a tiger through the Sumatran jungle. I knew you'd just beat it, wouldn't you? I can't think of anything cooler. Did you actually <laughs> get chased by a tiger running through the jungle? Yeah, that's actually true. Is it? Yeah. What happened? My, Tell me that story. Um, that was the first time I went to um, Indonesia, wandering around with a, a couple of friends in um, the Bukit Barisan rainforests. Uh, on Western Sumatra, and um, it was quite late at night. We're walking back from a, a salt lick, and we found a series of tiger tracks overlaying uh, our tracks. And then um, from the depths of the, the forest, heard this enormous, <laughs> and then it continued, this, this noise got closer and closer. So we, we turned tail and tried to escape, but this noise continued to follow us through the forest. So apparently it's a, a, a moan roar, which is a, an expression of displeasure. Wow. Um, that was a bit punchy. Yeah, I can't even compete. I'm trying to rack in my brains. Have I done anything as cool as that? Nope. Never An been chased by a tiger. An elephant tried to hit me in the head before with its trunk when oh, I was it living in Gabon. It missed. Yeah, don't, we sound, don't sound so disappointed. <laughs> we need to start calling you Mowgli. <laughs> well, well, no, I think Mowgli had more of a successful relationship with these animals. <laughs> We're digressing yeah. as usual. We are. We are. Back into space. Back you are space. a space cadet. So listen, we, we alluded at the start to David Alexander's role in this, and we've become good friends with him, but he's just an outstanding guy, isn't he? Well, yes, he's the director of the Rice Space Institute and uh, orchestrated this with, with NASA via Houston. So this is pretty high-level stuff. He's been a fantastic supporter of what's going on in, in Scotland, but is obviously a very significant figure in both Scottish and US space. So it's been an utter privilege to to work with him over the past few months. Yeah, he's a superstar and we just had to have a chat with him. Well, actually, I had to have a chat with him just to discuss how this all came about. I was, I was going to pick you up on this because I was on the call as well and you seem to have conveniently filtered out my recording <laughs> during okay, that conversation. Things. So how did he pull that one off? Two things. One, you said nothing of any relevance and two, you disappeared <laughs> off before it recorded and saved. <laughs> Okay, so it's all my fault then. I uh, had a quick chat with David just to thank him for involving us in such a cool project and to explain a little bit about how it came about. (laughs) 
So David, welcome back to the podcast. This is your second appearance. You're on series one, you're back on series three, and we did something pretty cool with the space station, and it was all your idea. Well, I don't know if it was all my idea, but it was a great event, and it's good to be back. I've been listening to your series, and so the fact that you're number three is fantastic. Um, so I think you're stepping from Edinburgh, Scotland, UK, that's mixed up the world, right? Is that, is that your plan? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have enough contacts to, to, I'm sure you'll make that happen. Um, no, I think this event, uh, you know, it was a, a little bit uh, fortuitous the way it came about. You know, I'm based in Houston, and so uh, we have a lot of connections to the Johnson Space Center, which is home of a lot of astronauts. And we have this monthly lecture series that's sponsored by the Houston Spaceport. And Kate Ribbons actually just showed up. Uh, she just moved close to Rice, and so Rice University, where I am and had come to this talk. And she'd just been back from a year in Russia. Uh, she was heading up the astronaut office in Star City. And um, just announced, just told me that she was going back up in uh, later that year. I think this was, was pre-COVID, so I don't know what year it was, what century it was or whatever. But she had offered to maybe do one of our lectures from space. Because wow. the crew get the crew get to do crew choice events, they're called. Anyway, so Kate said, um, you know, she kind of offered us the opportunity, and of course, I immediately said yes. And then the question is, what 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 could we do with it? There was a little bit more than just. So, for example, they, for Houston, they can only do a live event in the morning, so that didn't work. Our talks are in the evening, so I had to think of something different. And so that's where that that's how it got started. And, uh, you know, that kind of started the wheels spinning and the emails going out. Yeah, that's when I stuck my beak in and went, can I be involved, please? <laughs> well, I think, you know, actually, I mean, I, I contacted you in part and you and Murray actually in part because um, of what you're doing. Right. And I think I mean, the, the way that Scotland, the way I brought Scotland into this was really because I had had a conversation a couple of years earlier <laughs> when I had visited Presswick and Ayrshire College and uh, Mar Academy. I was thinking of ways of how we might connect Houston, Houston schools to Scottish schools uh, around the theme of space. But it takes a lot of work to get that kind of thing going. Teachers are really busy. And of course, this is all pre-COVID. So this is, you know, things things went belly up really quickly. But the notion that we could do a live event and I thought, well, we'll bring in some schools. Why not try and make it international? And of course, the first country I always think of is, is Scotland. And that's where I reached out because I knew what you guys were doing. And so so that was the start of that particular conversation. And I'd already been I'd, I'd already had to just cancel a trip to Ecuador <laughs> um, because of again, because of COVID and again, because of those connections, I thought, why not make it? A little bit broader try and make a real event of it and that's where we brought in ecuador as well well do you know so much has happened off the back of it i've had so many teachers reach out to me and say you know my kids in my class are obsessed with space do you know anyone that could come and speak to us and i've actually put one school in the south of edinburgh in touch with cassandra mercury who's also a former guest from the podcast who works for craft prospect she worked for NASA before she moved to Scotland and she's going to speak to a class of primary two and three-year-olds about how she helped to design the Mars rover. And I have never seen a group of kids so excited in their whole lives. And I just love that we're able to do that. That's just brilliant, isn't it? That's what it's all about, David. Well, it's fantastic. You know, I had, um, as part of the Scottish Space School, I was over two years ago, I think, with a couple of astronauts, um, uh, Mike Baker and uh, Rick Heeb. I actually went to my old school in 
or at least my, my niece's school in Springburn in Glasgow. And the younger group for me was the most thrilling because, I mean, you ask for questions and all of the hands go up right away. Um, you go to you go to the the secondary schools and everybody's too cool for school, you know, and everybody's <laughs> not. Well, okay, there's an astronaut, big deal, right? Um, trying trying to be blasé about it, but it's just, it, I mean, it really is fantastic. And I think yeah. this this the idea of connecting directly to the space station is just rather, I mean, special for me. And I've been working with these guys for a long time, so I'm just glad we were able to pull it off. It took a little bit of work by a lot. It of was people. a logistical <laughs> challenge. It really, it really was. Well, the biggest so the a biggest, global pandemic can make it even harder. Why don't you? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the one of the guests, the silver linings of that was it meant that we didn't have the problem of bringing people together in three different countries and sort of linking that all up. So it kind of made it. The, the, the fact that we were pre-recording the videos, mm-hmm. um, I think, made it a little bit less of a problem. The biggest issue, of course, was that you get a 20-minute slot. That's all. That's the, that's, the, that's the time it takes for them to pass in and out of range kind of thing because uh, they're moving at 17,500 miles an hour. So, so the problem was uh, get enough questions that you don't have dead air. You'll know that that's a problem, Kim. And you can only get maybe 15 of them answered. And we ended up with 46 questions from 20 schools around the world. And so that became, a, and this is where, this is where the kind of stuff that you guys, that you did in particular can, you know, with, with Murray's support, you know, making a, doing the, the two hour watch party, because that allowed us to bring in some other people, including, and I've got a lot of gratitude to Dr. Serena Onan Chancellor, who's another astronaut. And she basically took on the task to, to record a response to all of the questions so that we could cut to her after the live downlink. So we were able to get at least, um, if not all, most of the questions answered. We, we were part of Expedition 64, um, which, which included you know two different crews, one that went up on the regular order with the Soyuz, and then there was the crew crew one from SpaceX, which actually was pretty cool. And mm-hmm. and that's where we got Shannon Walker. And Shannon uh, is a Rice graduate. And um, I've, I've done actually gone to schools. Uh, Shannon used to play French horn and my son's a French horn player. So we used to do gigs together where we would talk to kids in the, in the band, for example. I mean, I, I know people keep saying, oh, this is your event, David, but it really took a lot of people to put it together and get the schools involved, get the teachers involved, people at Scottish Enterprise, you know, Fiona Clark, for example. Um, my, even my sister, who's a teacher, she got her school involved. Um, Robert Ion in, in Ecuador and Guay- Guayaquil put it together. And, uh, you know, you and you and Murray got to practice your Spanish. So that was, that was <laughs> cool to, to see. And, and so, you know, so it took a lot of different people. And then we did have the the participation of a number of other astronauts and you know NASA likes to VIPs as be part of these events and so we had a number of pre-recorded welcome speeches if you like from a number of different people so so I think overall I was panicked because we were getting really close we were I think we our event was a week before Kate Ribbons came home <laughs> so I was like panicked that it wasn't going to happen because because it's the schedulers who have who have the final say because it turns out there was a single crew member, American crew member, prior to Expedition 64, and so they didn't get all the science done in that rotation that they would have liked, which meant that Kate and her her crewmates were really, really busy. Mm. And so interrupting that with 
you know this kind of event was not high on their prior priority but but we they came through at the last minute so that was kind of fun we just want to thank you david for letting us be part of it because it was just definitely a career highlight thanks a lot you know you guys are doing a fantastic job with this podcast because i think not just at home but also abroad i think people are starting to realize wake up to what all the stuff that's cool stuff that's going on in scotland and and space is a big part of all that activity so uh yeah, keep up the good work. Well, we look forward to getting you properly drunk when you come over to Scotland. <laughs> I don't know what properly, maybe improperly drunk. <laughs> I don't <know>. I... <laughs> improperly drunk. It's a, it's a date, definitely. Well, that was utterly fantastic, Kim. And from, from my side, I would say that was an utter highlight in terms of everything I've been doing in, in space. So thank you. For, uh, for all that you've done to make that happen. Huge thanks again to David and to all the astronauts who all gave us their all time. All five of them. <laughs> well, all five of them who gave us their time uh, to NASA. And if you want to watch the watch party, we have recorded it and we will share yeah. the link on the Bay's website if you want to watch the whole thing because we had Bonnie Dunbar back on, who we had in a previous series, who is an incredible woman who's been into space five times and whose grandfather was born in Dundee. And then we had Serena Aunion Chancellor on at the end of the watch party, who is also an astronaut who's been into space several times, answering the questions that we didn't quite squeeze into the 20 minutes we had with the space station before it moved out of range. So we had quite a team, quite a team. It was an incredible, incredible team. But um, yeah, if you haven't watched that, then please do and listen to these conversations. I think really, really fascinating to hear about these lives. So who have we got coming up in this series? Oh, we've got some key luminaries in the uh, in the space industry. We've got people coming in from UKRI who have co-sponsored the, uh, the, the podcast series along with the data-driven innovation team. We've got Sir Martin Sweeting, who really is an utterly um, key figure in the development of, uh, of UK space, particularly small satellites. And Lord David Willits as well will be joining us, who is a brilliant architect of the policy environment and has been really a key driver in the support of UK space as a strategic opportunity. So some fantastic people we're going to yeah. be hearing from couple of surprises coming up as well so yeah, don't if... tell anyone about surprise oh, like you've got a surprise but don't tell them the surprise no 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 they've got to subscribe if they want to hear the surprise huge thanks to ukri and the science and technologies facilities council as well as the data-driven innovation program right here in edinburgh for supporting this podcast thanks for listening